Bonjour and welcome on the Gospel Spice podcast, where you are invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. Gospel Spice is your Christ-centered podcast, infused with in-depth biblical flavors and sprinkled with a dash of French culture to spice up your relationship with God. Here is your host, Stephanie Roussel. Bonjour and welcome to God's Glory or Delight. Today again, we had a guest teacher and his name is Steve Lobby. He is famous in the world of Christian publishing where he has worn pretty much all of the hats out there. He was on the publishing side for a major publishing house for many, many years. And then he started his own publishing company called Enclave that specializes in Christian fantasy. Actually, several years ago, when our son was a young teenager, he read several of the Christian fantasy books that were published by Enclave. And so it really already shaped my son's theology early on as a young teenager through the reading of these books. And so even though Steve and I had not yet met, he was already influencing our family in some ways. And I find this very fitting. He has published all sorts of books by amazing authors through his company. And he's also a literary agent, which means he is helping Christian authors find their voice in the Christian publishing market. But he's not here for any of those reasons, amazing as they might be. The truth of the matter is that Steve became my Sunday class teacher about two years ago. He is teaching his class in Arizona, where he lives in Phoenix. And I have been able to listen because he records his sessions. And so I'm one of those remote students of his. He started teaching about 18 years ago and he started with Genesis. And the class is going through every book of scripture, not in order, but chronologically. For example, right now, 1 Corinthians is on the menu. 1 Corinthians that is physically located after, let's say, Luke and Acts in your New Testament. But Luke and Acts were written after 1 Corinthians. So they haven't been taught by Steve yet. It's been 18 years and they joke it's probably going to be another 15 before they're done with the entire canon of scripture, ending with Revelation, of course. Now, that tells you something about Steve. He's got to be the most thorough Bible teacher that I know. I love his attention to details and you'll see that he brings some of that today. And also, Steve has been helping me personally in my quest to learn to delight in the glory of God by introducing me to some of the lesser known Puritans. They have such a passion, it's such a high Christology and such a passion for God and for his glory and a pursuit to delight in the glory of God that has been very seminal and that has actually shaped a lot of this entire study. Steve has really brought his flavor to the study even without being a part of it. So I decided it was just very fitting that he joined us today to give us his take on delighting in the glory of God. He's someone I'm very proud to present to you today, and I really hope you will enjoy this as much as I have. Well, thank you for having me, Stephanie. It's a, a privilege to be teaching. So when you gave me this opportunity, I was thrilled actually to be able to do it because today our focus is not just the uh, glory of God, although you can't discount that, but it's focusing on the transfiguration of Christ and how it relates to this entire topic we have in dealing with the glory of God. But before we begin, I do want to bless our time with a very short word of prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. I believe you all have studied this topic of glory for many weeks already. Uh, some of you have been here from the beginning. So there's a danger for me in teaching again on this topic for a bit of repetition. But anyone who's involved in education knows very well that repetition means learning. Because if you hear something over and over and over again, it actually starts to work its way into the very fabric of who you are and your understanding. And it was interesting when Stephanie first brought up the idea of talking about glory, <laughs> she had no idea that the topic of glory has been one that has, I don't know if it's a burden or a interest or a fascination for myself for years. And I guess it's part of the thing is being in the publishing business, I'm, I'm in the world of words and words have meaning. But very often a word like glory becomes used so frequently 
and so casually that it has robbed the word of its power in some ways. You know, for example, I grew up in a in a church. My dad was the music minister. My mom was the pianist. And you know, he was a banker by day and a music minister by night for all those years. But for many, many, many decades, every service began with the same hymn. The hymn is To God Be the Glory. So I grew up singing to God be the glory, great things he hath done, blah, 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 blah. Not even thinking about it because it was just rote. R-O-T-E, not W-R-O-T-E. You get get what I'm saying. And so it was later in my adult life, I began thinking, well, to God be the glory. To oh, We're supposed to give God glory. Well, well, what is it? What am I giving him? And then secondly, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if the glory of God is this threshold that we fall short of, well, how are we supposed to give him something that he already has? You see the conundrum? I don't have any grand, you know, answers here other than to say, be very careful with this word, not because it's fragile, but because it's explosive. There is something, if you just take a look at the overwhelming amount of times the word glory is used in our English translation in the Bible, you kind of get an idea that it's an important word. This is why it's exciting that you guys are focusing on this, that you're diving into it and you're looking carefully at it. And I know you've already heard that in the Hebrew, the word kabod is the Hebrew word for glory, and that the one of the original secondary or meanings or original meanings of the word is weight. So I begin trying to think, okay, what does this mean? If glory is weight, but isn't weight a burden? I mean, my guess is there's quite a few of you, including myself, who would like to lose weight rather than gain weight. Or when we talk about the weight of the world on our shoulders, it's this, oh, there's so much weight. So in this case, however, the weight is not a burden. It's actually a gift. Okay. So <laughs> I was actually struggling to try to find some modern picture of what kind of weight is a good weight. And I thought of a weighted blanket. I know it metaphors all fall apart and they don't always work completely, especially theologically. But think about this for a second. You get yourself in a cold evening and you get your cup of tea or your cup of coffee and you get in your favorite chair and you put on this weighted blanket. You feel the weight of it, but it encompasses you. It holds you in place. It's comforting. It's safe. It feels good. Now, that's where the metaphor breaks down with the glory of God, because you certainly can't look at Romans 3.23 and say, we have fallen short of the weighted blanket of God, because that would just be silly. But you get my point. There is a idea here of weight. Now, what's fascinating is that the Greek word in the New Testament is the word doxa, D-O-X-A. Now, Before we go on, you have to realize that Old Testament, New Testament, yes. But the Old Testament was translated into Greek in 250 BC. So that's two and a half centuries before the time of Christ and the apostles and Paul in the New Testament. There there were 70 Jewish scholars in Alexandria in Egypt who translated the Hebrew Bible into classical Greek so that more people in the Greek culture could read it. That's why when you see the Septuagint indicated in uh, an abbreviation, it's LXX for the Roman numeral 70 for 70 Jewish scholars. Now now you can win a trivia question in case you want to wow your friends and family. Anyway, these Jewish scholars looked at the Hebrew word kabod and thought, what Greek word can we find that means that? And there wasn't one. Not really. There was a word Time, T-I-M-E, with a long E, Time. But there was also dogza. But dogza meant opinion or conjecture or expectation. And only occasionally did it mean to express praise or honor. But they thought, you know, this is a good word in its meaning to correspond with kabod. So they used it. It is one of the few classical Greek words in all of classical Greek literature that changed its meaning because of its use in Holy Scripture. Over the centuries, the word doxa began to start meaning primarily praise and honor. Isn't that interesting? 
So then Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17 talks about the weight of glory. <laughs> Think about that for a second. The kabod of dogza, the weight. Now, obviously, it's a Greek word for weight, but the weight of glory. And then C.S. Lewis picked that up for his uh, address by the same name. In exploring this idea that glory is something of importance. Now, you ask, well, where did the word glory come from? That came from Jerome's Latin Vulgate. When he translated the Old and New Testaments, he used the Latin word gloria for both kabod and dogza. And that's why we have the word glory today. One of my favorite Puritans is an author named Thomas Watson. Now, you might be afraid of the Puritans, thinking they're a bunch of stodgy, dry, boring, dull British writers. Yet Thomas Watson, I almost wish he were alive today because his works actually are accessible. You, you know, he doesn't take one verse and write 79 volumes on one verse. He's very succinct. Well, I have a book. It's called The Body of Divinity. This little thing, hey, you can buy it on Amazon for $10 in hardcover. You owe it to yourself. What this is, is an entire exploration of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's basically a theology. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, Thomas Watson spends 20 pages on that topic alone, and his language transports you when you start exploring the idea of glory. He defined glory this way. He said, glory is the sparkling of deity. Just think about that for a second. The sparkling of deity. It's that, uh, we like to say something shiny, but it's just, there's this beauty to this. And the other thing we have to think about when we talk about glory, you say, you know, we want to give God the glory and give God the praise as if we can add to it. We can't. All we can do is acknowledge it. We can only point to it. We're not giving him something he doesn't already have. We are pointing to God's glory so that our praise becomes more august and more awesome. Because you see, God shows us his glory every day. There's a new book by John Piper. The actual book is 760 pages long on one topic. Yeah, I think he's trying to reincarnate himself as a Puritan. <laughs> anyway, on page 17, he has this short paragraph that I think illustrates how God is showing his glory to us every day. Let me just read it for you. I used to look at sunrises when I was jogging and think that God had created a beautiful world. Then it became less and more specific and more personal. I said, every morning God paints a different sunrise. He never gets tired of doing it again and again. And then it struck me. No, he doesn't do it again and again. He never stops doing it. The sun is always rising somewhere in the world. God guides the sun 24 hours every day and paints sunrises every moment, century after century, without one second of respite and never grows weary or less thrilled with the works of his hands. Even when clouds cover that keeps a man or a woman from seeing it, God is still painting spectacular sunrises above our heads. If that doesn't make you stop for a second and give God praise and glory, you're not thinking hard enough. You're not realizing the extraordinary nature of this God who doesn't need us, but loves us and provides for our salvation and our redemption. Now, to our, store, our actual study for the day, that was just my prelim. <laughs> yeah, we could be here for a while. Sorry. Anyway. So when we focus on the transfiguration, the first thing you need to get out is your, your uh, study note. So you have a, a text in front of you. And what I did with the study notes is I took Matthew chapter 17 and combined it with Mark 9 and Luke 9. The idea was that all three synop uh, of the synoptic gospels, not John, but the three Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a, a, a piece of the puzzle. And so you have three different 
accounts of the transfiguration, but working them into one narrative, you have Luke saying one thing, Matthew adding this piece, so the whole thing comes together. But when it comes to the transfiguration, let me ask this question. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the transfiguration? Just think about that for a second. This seminal event in the life of Christ is just simply not talked about very often. It, it happens occasionally, but not regularly. And there's lots of theories behind it. You know, I, I read in that long passage of materials, a lot of theories as to why it has, it's somewhat, quote unquote, out of favor. And partly is because it's hard to comprehend. As one person put it, this story strains our faith and baffles our imagination. Why is that? I mean, we're going to try to dig into that today. Now, if you are in a, from a liturgical tradition, the church calendar, Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, Episcopal, the church calendar technically celebrates Transfiguration Day as August 6th. But in the Transfiguration Sunday in the liturgical calendar, it's the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. It is the last Sunday of Epiphany before the first Sunday of Lent. So let me ask you, did your church have a sermon on the Transfiguration? I don't know the answer. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying, did you? And yet, the Transfiguration marks a crucial transition point in Jesus's ministry. Before, there was almost no talk from Jesus of his death on the cross. After the Transfiguration, it's talked about over and over again. A best-selling author actually did a two-volume work on the life of Christ. Volume one was From Birth to the Transfiguration. Volume two was Transfiguration to Ascension. The linchpin in the middle was the trans Transfiguration. In a book that I have on the chronological life of Christ, it's a 690-page book. The Transfiguration takes place on page 310 kind of in the middle. And yet, what's fascinating is that chronologically, in the three-year period of Jesus's ministry on earth, it's not in the halfway point. The transfiguration probably happened about six months before the crucifixion. So you have two and a half years of his ministry is the first half of Christ's ministry that we have in the gospel record. But then the last six months is what takes up the body and the... Um, the, the balance of the gospel message. I, the way I call it, I call it a hinge upon which a door is allowed to swing open. So let's look at the text. In fact, I will just read with you the text so you are familiar with it, so that we go back through, we can pull things out, because sometimes it's hard to read something for the first time, and I think the public reading of Holy Scripture is a lost art. So let's do that. And after six, or eight, according to Luke, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain to pray by themselves. And as he was praying, he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun. The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling, white as light, as no one on earth could bleach them. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, appearing in glory talking with him and speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they came fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, Rabbi, it's good that we were here. If you wish, uh, let us No, I, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. <laughs> for he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, my chosen one, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And suddenly, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision of the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So they kept the matter themselves, and no one told in those days anything of what they had seen, questioning this rising from the dead might mean. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, the Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Now it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. 
so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood what he was speaking of them, that they were speaking them of John the Baptist. Blessed be the reading of God's word. So any good journalist is going to attack a story with who, what, when, why, where, how, and why maybe. It says after six, and then Luke says eight days. Well, skeptics love this contradiction. They say, see, the Bible's wrong. We got two people who can't get their facts right. Well, we could talk about the various quote-unquote inconsistencies in Scripture all day. One thing I have to say is that when police interview witnesses, if they all say the exact same thing, they think they're in collusion with each other and that the real story is not being told. Just ask any policeman, any detective. If you have this shade because they were standing over here and this shade because they were standing over there, they might see the same event from two different perspectives. Now, something like this is not necessarily a different perspective. It's just a different way of expressing it because it's after six days. Well, after six days of what? Well, that means you have to go back to Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, you have Peter answering the question when Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter announces, well, you are the son of God. Jesus was pleased with that answer. But also, then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever should, would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? And what will a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory, there's that word again, in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, now he's talking to the disciples right now, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming to his kingdom. The next verse is, after six days... Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John to a high mountain. Interesting. So there's a connection. My friends, never forget that the chapter breaks are not inspired and the verses are not inspired. They are added by human beings for us to figure out and find verses. I think the verses in scripture in the English Bible were not added until the 1600s. There was a guy on horseback going, an itinerant minister going from place to place, that's why you find some places where his pen made a mark and we get weird breaks in verse references. So think about the narrative of scripture. So the passage, there are among you those who will not die until they see the Son of Man in glory. Well, I'm paraphrasing now. And here we are six days later. Now, Matthew's probably counting the six days of the week and Luke was counting the two Sabbaths in addition. You see the difference? It's that simple. It's not some big mistake. It's just that Jewish people would count their days differently. And remember, the Matthew audience are Jewish, and the Lucan audience were Greek. And so they would consider the days, each would look at the six days of the week differently. Anyway, there were three of them, Peter, James, and John. Well, why those three? You might go, well, they're the, you know, they're the three stars of the basketball team. I mean, they're the ones who make the engine run. Well, granted, they were kind of the tactic leaders, but you also have to remember in Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15, it is at the mouth of three witnesses that a matter shall be established. If there are three witnesses of something, it is considered verifiable. That's why there's three. I've read people who say, well, this is a picture of the Trinity. Um, okay, nice try. But I highly doubt that Peter, James, and John represent the Trinity. Um, but that's my opinion. <laughs> it's just three men who are witnesses to what's going on. And they led them up to a high, high mountain. Well, where is this mountain? Everybody wants to know because we want to go there. We want to stand on that spot. If you ever in your life have the opportunity to visit the Holy Land as a tourist and visit the various places, please do so. I went when I was 19. That wasn't last year, as you can tell by the color of my hair. Um, I've never forgotten it. I have never forgotten being in that bus, cresting a hill and seeing the Sea of Galilee in the distance and thinking, that's not a sea, it's a pond. <laughs> it's not that big. Oh my goodness, it just blew my mind to put things into perspective. Anyway, so where was this high mountain? Well, there's a lot of theories. Some say Mount Tabor, which was near the Sea of Galilee, 1900 feet high. So not that, that high, but it's, you know, it's a hike. The problem is, is that back then, the 
common thought is that there was a Roman garrison on that hill somewhere, which meant it wouldn't be very private. And this event needed to be among these few. Others like to say it's Mount Hermon, which is much farther north. Now, if we want to follow our chronology, it's very possible that they were in that region. It's also very possible that they walked from where they were over six days, which is where you might get the six days of walking because they didn't walk on the Sabbath. It might have been those six days to get to Mount Hermon. There's nothing that says that that couldn't have happened. Mount Hermon is 9,300 feet high. That's snow on it. I mean, I... <laughs> This is a little side note. For those of you who always think about Israel as a desert landscape, I live in Arizona. So we are in the same latitude line as Jerusalem. Tucson is the, I'm in Phoenix, but it's Tucson is the same latitude line as Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's higher. So, you know, here we are, college students going to, the, to Israel, and we're going in January. And we're thinking, great, you know, we're going to the desert. This is cool. We'll wear, you know, bring our tank tops and our flip-flops and our shorts, and it's going to be great. We landed, and there was snow on the ground. It was snowing. Uh, imagine <laughs> our discussions about what we brought to wear in this cold climate. But anyway, Mount Hermon, much farther north. There's a lot of mountains in scripture. You've got this Mount of Transfiguration, wherever that might be, Mount Hermon, Mount Tabor, got the Mount of Olives, you got Mount Zion, which is what Jerusalem sits on. You've got Mount Sinai from the Old Testament. You even have a Sermon on the Mount. Well, which mount was it? I still remember being on that tour, and we're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and the New Testament professor, who was one of our guides, pointed off in the distance. He said, many people think the Sermon on the Mount happened over here, but I think it happened over here. We're going, how do you know? Now, anyway, that's another story entirely. Just for your tickles and grins, comparing the Mark and story of the Transfiguration with the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses. And isn't it fascinating? There were six days, there were three disciples, or there were three men who were with him. You have them named. Aaron was one, the other two I can't remember. They Moses ascended a mountain. There was a transfiguration, because if you remember, Moses' face glowed afterwards. It was so bright that in Exodus 34, it terrified the people. This was after he had seen and visited God, and he saw a glimpse of of the glory of God, his face was transformed to the point in Exodus 34, he had to put a veil over his face so that people wouldn't be afraid of him. He also had clouds. There was a cloud, there was a voice from the cloud, and then later the people were astonished. Isn't it fascinating? The parallel between our transfiguration thing and the Old Testament story, I, I just find those kinds of exercises absolutely fascinating. Anyway, back to our text. We're still in verse one, guys. <laughs> <clears throat> so, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to pray, Luke says. Now, note, 15 times in the books that Luke wrote, which is the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, 15 times Luke has prayer as an exercise or an event or something that was happening right before a major event 15 times. So Luke wanted to express that the communication between humans and God is something of power and something of meaning. I mean, there's no other way for us to have intimacy with God except through prayer. And as I was contemplating this, I started thinking about prayer as when we are praying, we are looking to God, we are focusing on Him, which is what we should be doing in our prayers, that means our entire world is behind us, not in front of us. We're not navel-gazing, looking at ourselves and wondering, you know, oh, I'm so wonderful. No, it's God who is wonderful. This is how we give God the glory, is in our prayers. So Jesus is praying. Verse 2 says, and as He was praying, this is really, again, critical. He didn't stop praying, and then all the events happened. His prayer was interrupted. So what was Jesus praying for? Ever thought about that? Doesn't say. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to take a liberty here. But my guess is that he was praying that he would be transfigured in front of these three so they could see a glimpse of who he really was, or should I say, really is. But as he was praying, he was transfigured, a Greek word for transfigured, metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis. 
you know what a metamorphosis is. You, you understand that. You talk about butterflies metamorphosizing from a caterpillar to a beautiful butterfly. But that's what the word transfigured is in Greek. It's metamorpho. This word is only used two other places in all of the New Testament. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? You can finish the verse. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be metamorphosized. Be transfigured. And then also in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it reads, For we all with unveiled face, notice the veiling picture again, but with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Metamorpho. We're going to be metamorphosized into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And that's Paul talking about sanctification. You see why the transfiguration is so fascinating? We see Jesus being transformed from one to another, and yet he's no different than he was before. He is still the same Jesus, fully human, fully God. And what happened when he was transfigured? It said his face shone like the sun. The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white as light, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, white clothing was rare in the New Testament. Why? It's awfully hard to keep clean. And if you ever spend time in Israel, there's a lot of red dust, the copper in the dirt. And if you have ever messed with bricks and you're working in your home or you have anything that has a red element to it that's dust, it gets on your clothes and it stains them. Yeah, you can wash them out because you use Tide. Well, they didn't. And it's hard to get that out. So they wouldn't wear clothing that was bright white. I mean, they might in a ceremonial fashion, but they wouldn't necessarily wear it, you know, down the street as part of their workaday world. So his clothes became dazzling white as light. And also notice where the light is emanating from. It's not shining on him it's shining from him. We as humans try so hard to make ourselves divine. We try to make ourselves into gods. We try to dress ourselves, act. We want everyone to bow to our needs and our desires. You have in Acts 12, 21 and 22. Well, let's just read it. Acts 12, 21 and 22. Get this one. You have the story of Herod one of the Herods. This is Herod Agrippa, not Herod the Great. Herod the Great was dead by now, but one of his sons, Herod Agrippa. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people shouted, the voice of a god and not a man. He was making them think he was a god. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Can I just suggest you not follow his example? I'm not sure you want to be eaten by worms like that. Um, but he did not give God the glory. He took it all on himself. And we try to do this because we're trying to create from ourselves and saying, we are divine. Shine the bright light on us. Stage. It's not what happened here. Christ is transformed before them and emanating from him is a glimpse of the glory of God. Now, remember when Moses, he said, you know, show me your face. And God says, no man can see my face and live. And so God passed by and all he saw was a fleeting glimpse. And it was so that, oh, it, it basically turned him into a bright light. He was glowing. But that's not all. Verse 3, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah appearing, this is Luke again, appeared in glory talking to Jesus. Okay, here's an unanswerable question for you, for you know, those of you who like to really dig into the details of Scripture. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, did they have their Facebook pages? Did they have Instagram posts where they saw all their, you know, their food that they've been making the last 10 days? No. How did Peter, James, and John know this was Moses and Elijah? <laughs> We can't answer that question because the scripture doesn't tell us, and it doesn't tell us because we don't need to know. It's that simple. Never forget that the Holy Spirit is still active in the lives of these three, whether they understood it or not, and whether or not they truly comprehended. We don't even have a note that Jesus might have said later, by the way, that's who that was. 
But why Moses and Elijah, for goodness sake? Why not Abraham, the father of the Jewish people? Why not John the Baptist? I mean, he's alluded to later. I mean, he was dead. Why not King David, for goodness sake? He was like the Hall of Fame guy. Moses and Elijah. Interesting choice. Until you realize Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. The Old Testament is made up of history, law, prophets, poetry, if you want to just simplify it. But the law established the, I would call it the rules, the, the methodology of God saying to his people, if you follow my law, then righteousness possibly can come your way. We can go into theology of that. But you also have the prophets who are speaking to the future, but also to the existing present at that time and calling people to a greater focus on keeping the law. I just find it fascinating that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. How often is that said throughout the New Testament? And here we have it in picture form. This is a poster saying, this is what I mean. And so Moses and Elijah appear in glory, and they're talking to him about what? I mean, are they talking about last week's game between the Jerusalem jumpers and the Capernaum vipers? Uh, maybe they're talking about whether or not your favorite politician won an election. No, no. It says in Luke that they were speaking of his, and in the ESV, it says his departure. In the King James, it says his declension, which you go, what in the world is that? It's the Hebrew word, actually the Greek word for the Hebrew word exodus for his departure, for his liberation from bondage, for people's liberation from bondage of sin. They spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. Fascinating. Wouldn't you want to have been able to hear that? What were they talking about? But unfortunately, Luke also has in his text what was actually going on, and probably why we may not know exactly what was being said, other than the general gist of it, because Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Sigh. Come on, guys. You're with Jesus, for goodness sake. Yeah, he's taken you on a six-day walk to a mountain, and you've just climbed a mountain, and it might even be evening, and you're tired and hungry and grumpy, and you said, it's siesta time. We take, I mean, get me wrong, maybe Stephanie can address this, but in Europe have certain times where there is a afternoon where there's an hour or two where people just don't work anymore. That was a shock to me when I was in Europe, kind of going, where is everybody? I want to buy something. The stores are all closed because they're having their naps in the afternoon. Okay. I'm being facetious, but don't we have another example rather more famous of the disciples falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, for goodness sake? What is it with these guys? I mean, have they ever heard of caffeine? Gee, it's just, it's aggravating to me when I read these and saying, we are such weak people. We could be in the presence of God. Oh, wait, we are in the presence of God right now. And some of you have been checking the clock. I don't think there's anything more important that you need to be doing than what we're doing right now. We are in the Word and listening to the Word. And yeah, I may not be the most exciting speaker and I could be falling asleep. You could be falling asleep too. But let's just look at the frailty of the people that God called to change the world, just like you and me. That's why this admission is here. Hey, if I was writing this story, I certainly wouldn't write about me falling asleep and missing the show. I would have talked about how I recorded everything on my iPhone and I knew exactly what was going on. And I was just, I was there. No, it's expressing to us that God uses people like us who can unfortunately fall asleep in something, in something that's actually quite extraordinary. So as the men were departing from him, that's uh, Moses and Elijah, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, Rabbi, <laughs> I'm so glad we were here. <laughs> if you wish, can you let me make three tents? I mean, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah? Now, before we get too critical of Peter, was he wrong to want to do this? Was he wrong to want to memorialize this extraordinary event that he had just seen? No. We, too, would want it to last forever. But for Jesus, this was not a stopping place. It was a starting place. This past Christmas, there was a, um, we had family over and our kids and grandkids were there. And at one point, one of the grandkids was opening a present and 
I didn't have my camera out. And someone says, well, aren't you going to take a picture? I went, no, I want to capture it here for the rest of my life. I don't need a picture to remind me of what I'm watching right now. It was too important for me to memorialize. Oh, I know. I'm not being critical of those who take pictures. Goodness, my dad took a billion pictures back when you had to pay for every photograph you took, if you had them developed. In fact, when um, after he had passed away and my mom passed away, we found, I think it was 18 boxes, bank boxes full of photographs that we start going through going, I have no idea why he took this picture of flowers. I have no idea why he took this picture of a tree. I have no idea who this person is. But, you know, again, we memorialize things and that's okay. But Jesus didn't want to do that. And now here's another little trivia thing. The when all of this happened, remember it's approximately six months before the uh, crucifixion. That's September, October. October is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It was one of the feasts that was still being celebrated. Passover was one, of course, but the Feast of Tabernacles was still being celebrated in Jerusalem where they would actually, for a week, they would build a small tent and live in it for six weeks as part of the celebration uh, and uh, of the Feast of Tabernacles. So maybe Peter had that in mind. I mean, we don't, you know, every, I, I've read complete sermons basically talking about how Peter blew it and he was trying to build a building when he should have just been, you know, listening to God. You're like, ah, that's kind of our default. Well, read the, let me read you something from Oswald Chambers. This is from his October 1st entry in his book, My Utmost for His Highest. We have all had times on the mountain when we've seen things from God's standpoint and have wanted to stay there, but God will never allow us to stay there. The test of our spiritual life is the power to descend. If we have the power to rise only, something is wrong. It's a great thing to be on the mount with God, but a person who gets there in order that afterwards he may get down among the devil possessed and lift them up. That's the whole point. We are not built for the mountains and the dawns and the ascetic affinities. Those are for moments of inspiration. That's all. We are built for the valley, for the ordinary stuff we are in. And that is where we have to prove our mettle. Spiritual selfishness always wants repeated moments on the mountain. We feel we could talk like angels and live like angels if only we could stay on the mountain. The times of exaltation are exceptional. They have their meaning in our life with God. But we must beware lest our spiritual selfishness wants to make them the only time that we connect with God. Powerful stuff, eh? So after the, the balance of the, the text, you have the disciples asking him about Elijah. Shouldn't, doesn't Elijah first has to come? And ultimately, Jesus says, well, Elijah has come, and it's John the Baptist. He was the forerunner. He was the one who was proclaiming my coming. The parallel passage here referred that they're referring to is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. These are the last two verses of the Old Testament. Let me read them to you. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation, utter destruction, actually. The last thing in the Old Testament. And then 400 silent years. And then we have the New Testament and the advent of Christ. By the way, I spent almost a year teaching the Apocrypha, the 400 silent years, uh, digging into the Maccabees and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and how we got to where it was. And the reason I taught it is because Galatians says that Jesus came when the time had fully come. Well, what does that mean? So all the preparation of those 400 silent years, and just for those of you who don't understand, it's called the silent years because there were no prophets. And there were no writings that we now consider as part of Holy Scripture. There were the apocryphal works, but there were no prophets in those times. So here's my point. God was not silent. It's just we weren't listening for 400 years. Kind of reminds of our current culture where people are starting to turn off the voice of God in their lives. I rue that day when we could no longer hear his voice. Peter never forgot this incident. Oh, yeah. He was a loud, you know, aggressive guy. I mean, he did deny Christ three times. Like, 
wait a minute, you were at the Transfiguration, buddy, just a few months ago. What, what's wrong with you? But when he wrote Second Peter, chapter one, it reads, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Yeah, we heard that once before, didn't we? At the baptism of Christ in the River Jordan, when a dove came from heaven and a voice spoke. You know, we have this... This thing of the, the coming in the clouds and, 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 and God speaking into our lives in such extraordinary ways. And these clouds that came and from which God spoke were clouds of light, not clouds of darkness. For us, clouds cover the light. But in this case, it brightened the day. Think about this. Contemplate this. For that matter, do an entire Bible study on the word cloud. You would be amazed to see what's there. Well, we've pretty much extend, expanded our time here. I do want to close with a couple thoughts. What is the significance of the transfiguration? Yeah, I bounced around a little bit here at the end over, over some of the passages, but got distracted by a clock, believe it or not. Nothing like breaking my own rules, eh? <laughs> Aren't we human beings, ultimately? The significance of the transformation, transfiguration, there is no question that Jesus is God. If you have seen this, and you saw the glimpse of the glory of this tiny crack just popping open for a moment, and this blinding light comes out at you. You know that something is there. There's no question of his deity. Number two, you will not stay on the mountaintop in your lifetime. I hope you have mountaintop experiences. You could probably even relay some of them to your family and friends and to others, but you're not going to stay there. As Oddwald Chambers says, we are meant to go down into the valley and talk to those who have been deceived by the devil, by Satan, into believing that there is no such thing. Another thought, God is absolutely more than we can comprehend. It's just, the more I study the doctrine of God and looking at God in scripture, it's just, <laughs> we are so finite. We cannot pull it all together. There's just no way. And yet, in Jesus Christ, we have that access. If you know Jesus and love Jesus, you have a glimpse of the glory of the Holy Trinity through the Holy Spirit. One of the verses that I skipped over that um, I think is important, see if I can find it here, says, when the clouds opened up and God spoke, he says, listen to him. Can I suggest you take those three words and write them in your Bible somewhere? Listen to him. There's nothing like having the voice of God giving us direction and giving us sustenance and giving us life. Number four, or number five, we need to be transformed so that you can be transfigured. Let Christ shine through you. When others are looking at you, what are they seeing? Are they seeing you or are they seeing Christ? Do you reflect God's glory? I'll bet you've met people. It's you don't know that they're believers, that they're Christians, but you walk away and go, I think that person has Christ in them because they were reflecting light and glory and joy. It's just not normal. And lastly, if you think about the vision of Moses and Elijah, I shouldn't say vision, the coming of Moses and Elijah on that mountain, doesn't that say something about eternal life? Just think about that for a second. Moses had been gone for what, 800 years, 1,000 years? Elijah never died. He was transported into heaven, and yet they were there having a conversation with Jesus. This world is not our home. Thank goodness. I had a friend of mine say, so when I get my resurrected body, do I? am I going to be bald? <laughs> I just said, you know, at that point, you won't care. It won't matter. But if this is all there is, and we have been deluding ourselves, I think scripture, a story like this, gives us this amazing picture of the glories of heaven touching earth. And then later on, these three men never forgot it. I mean, First Peter was written approximately 30, 35 years later. John, in John's gospel, John 1.14, he says, we have beheld his glory. We have seen it. Was this is what was he alluding to? Because all through the book of John, he talks about glory. 
And he wrote that 60 years after this event, maybe 50, depending on your chronology. We have beheld his glory. We have beheld the transfiguration. Well, I'd like to end this time with a very brief prayer that comes from the Book of Common Prayer. So let's pray with me as I read. O oh God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Ooh, Steve, thank you so much for all of this. One more reason I'm particularly excited that we are airing this episode in the fall is that we are close to the Jewish celebration of the Festival of Booth or Festival of Tabernacle, which is most likely to have been happening around the time when the transfiguration took place. And that might be one of the reasons why Peter was thinking about building those tents or those tabernacles or those booths for the three of them up there on the mountain. So the fact that we are airing this in the fall, Steve, is just a powerful reminder of the timelessness of scripture, but also the timeliness of it in the sense that the transfiguration happened just about 2000 years ago this fall. And that is a powerful story. So thank you, Steve, so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Hi, Jonah here. We are so glad you joined us today. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider joining our free membership to access all sorts of Gospel Spice content. Also, please give us a star rating and a comment on your podcast listening app. Your reviews help others discover and experience Gospel Spice. Consider also talking to your church leader about welcoming Stephanie to your church. She's currently taking speaking engagements for the next 18 months. Finally, know we are praying for you. You can confidentially email us your prayer requests and praise items at the email address contact at gospelspice.com. We look forward to serving you again with our next episode. Merci.